welcome, and uh, we are in part seven of our Life on Purpose series. So if you've been with us since the beginning of this year, uh, this is kind of where we've been on Sunday mornings, walking our way through the Gospel of Matthew uh, in our home groups. We've been spending time uh, reading through passages and praying through those uh, passages together. And really what we've been trying to do is, or really what we've been discovering, I should say, is that when it comes to living a life of purpose, a life that matters, right, a life that has uh, significance, a life that makes an impact. When, when we look at the life of Jesus, uh, we see that he's actually inviting us into a life that is filled with purpose because we begin to find meaning and reason and significance around every single corner uh, when we follow him. And that's actually an incredibly rewarding thing for us because um, we want to know what purpose we have in life, don't we? Like, I think we do. And, and we've been in this for seven weeks, and there's, as we have conversations and as we hear uh, how people are processing this, and, and even myself included, it seems like, well, I wanted just somebody to just like hire or like charter a plane to fly by my house and have the banner of that back of that plane just tell me what I'm supposed to do, Right? Or, or like we're just desperate for like someone to like call us or text us to say, here is what you are supposed to do with your life. And your phone will self-destruct in the next five seconds. Like we just want, we want, some, we want it to be so obvious to us, right? We want an angel from heaven to appear before us and tell us, this is your purpose in life. This is what you've been made for. This is the exact thing for you to go and do. And, and you know what? There are stories where stuff like that happens. But I would imagine that that is not by any means normal uh, for, for just about anybody, right? And so we have this sense of saying, okay, I want to have a, a life of purpose. I want to make a difference. I, I want to have a reason for getting out of bed in the morning. Um, and yet I'm still, even though I'm doing maybe a job that I love or I'm in a program that I love or whatever it may be, is this like, is this the thing? Is this what it is? And it, we're learning together as a community that this is actually bigger and broader than simply having a one-sentence kind of thing. It's bigger and broader than just having a job description where we go down the bullet points and we say, this is what you're supposed to do with your life. Finding purpose in, in our lives is actually, uh, Jesus has been showing us, is a part of everything that we do. I bet that for most of us, when it comes to um, living a life of purpose, we, we assume or we expect or we desire at the very least that some part of the way we live our life would make a difference in the world. That we would not just uh, live our lives for ourselves and for our own needs, but that we would find a way to actually meet the needs of others around the world. Like we have this sense inside, and maybe this is a tension point that, that we're wrestling with, where it's like this can't, my whole life just can't be about me. <clears throat> can't just be about focusing about me and my needs and trying to convince as many people as possible to serve me as well. There must be something about this that is, that is bigger than me, that's outside of myself, that's making a difference, that's making an impact. We might even say, um, there must be something about my purpose in life that has to do with bringing justice into the world. Because making, living a life of purpose, rather, uh, we sense should be bigger than just ourselves. But that can be burdensome, can it? Like, where, where would you even start? Where, where do we even start when it comes to trying to figure out what's wrong or where we can help with the world? Because it seems like so much is wrong with the world. And like, we don't even necessarily watch the news, right? We can just 
you know, sit across the table from our family members and say, yeah, there's a lot wrong <laughs> with the world. Like, there's trouble in this life. It's difficult. Where do we start? Like, okay, I want to I give some time. I want to volunteer a bit of time. I want to maybe give a little bit of money. Uh, but there are so many opportunities. It seems like everybody is trying to get help uh, from me. It seems like everybody's trying to get into my pockets. Everybody is trying to, I'm already feeling like I'm being stretched in too many directions. Or, or maybe you feel stuck and you're like, I haven't even started doing anything because I don't even know where uh, to get started. Like, if I want to live a life on purpose, and if that life of purpose has some element of making a difference around the world, where do you even begin? Might be the question we're asking. Volunteerism in Canada seems to be a value to us, actually. Um, 50% of Canadians volunteer in some capacity throughout the year. That's pretty good, right? There's always room for improvement with these kind of things. What's even more amazing is that those 15 to 25 make up half of the Canadian volunteer force, which is saying something tremendous about the next generation, isn't it? That the next generation loves to get their hands on things and like loves to be a part of a movement, likes to see things done. After young people, um, in terms of the people that volunteer, I found this interesting. The second place in terms of how many hours are given, um, single Canadians and Parents who have kids at home are, are the ones that, as, they, as the Canada Helps worked out this study, um, said these are the people that are giving the most time. So it does seem like there's a, there's a value in terms of volunteerism, right? Like we've made it a part of our, our school process where you have to get hours to, 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 to graduate, right? That can be good and that can be bad because there can be the sense of, well, you just get it done and you get on with it and who cares? Uh, or there could be the sense of saying, no, this is a value to us that we are going to help other people. We tend to think of changing the world, making an impact on the world, giving our time, doing something. We also tend to think of it in terms of money. So most of the money, I found this fascinating, most of the money that gets donated in Canada, not just in churches, but in Canada, happens in the month of November and December, with the majority of giving happening, more than 30% of it happening in the month of December. Why is that amusing? Because it just tells me that, I mean, I'm sure there's something about the holiday spirit where people are feeling generous, but there's also a tax return. And you're like understanding where you're at and you want to get that in before the 31st so you can capitalize on that. Hey, you know what? Why not use that as a bit of a motivation? Um, people 55 plus give the most amount of money in Canada. And actually, if it wasn't for people 55 plus giving their money to charitable causes, um, there, would be no, there would be a steady decline in charitable giving. But the 55 plus people are actually making it so that charitable giving is actually increasing on a year-to-year -year basis, which is an interesting kind of thing. Some of that giving happens on a regular basis, but the majority of it happens, one or two donations happening per year. I guess people are inspired and, and they give. And this is all stuff we should be celebrating, absolutely things we should be celebrating. To see that the next generation is a group of people that is saying, um, I matter, you matter, let's join forces and let's save the world, right? Like that can be a really good, powerful thing. I think one of the reasons that's happening is because young people are being exposed to all sorts of different things. They've got all sorts of different friends from all different walks of life through social media and just the way that in the information is communicated these days, the access to, to causes and to movements and there's something inspiring about that and that is so, so good. Those that are older that are giving all the money, I think they're doing that because by comparison to the young people, the older people have money, right? So it could be as simple as that, right? Young people aren't necessarily giving money because they don't necessarily have that, right? Young people are like, amen. Older people, as you're generous in your giving, that's amazing and we love that and we celebrate that being a part of our culture, but there might also be this sense where I can give money um, and I don't actually have to be in the, on the front lines, 
I can give and I can support, but I don't have to be right in the thick of it. And I think there's a cool generational tension that we ought to pay attention to in how this is playing out. Now, some of us are perhaps feeling um, already stretched in too many different directions, right? Okay, I want to help, I want to give, I want to do whatever, but I can't, can I, do I have to give every dollar? Like, I feel like I'm giving, I've already given a lot, or when it comes to time, I feel like I'm already using, I'm, I'm giving so much of my time, I, I don't have anything left. I actually have to stop doing certain things because I'm feeling maxed out. There's others that are maybe feeling a bit of burden and saying, I'm not even sure I've landed in any of those statistics because I don't know if I'm giving any time. I don't know if I've been uh, giving charitably or generously in any other way or helping. And, And we feel this kind of weight because, again, if we're processing all this with connection to our purpose in life, saying that who I am as a person, who we are as a community, our purpose in life is not to live for ourselves, but it's to live for others. If we're kind of processing and working through all this, this feels tremendous because if we're going to make a difference, if it's part of what we've been made to do, we want to have this figured out. But I guess a question that I really want to unpack or look at today is, is doing justice or being a just person, is making a difference in the world, making an impact, is it really as simple as checking a few boxes off of a to-do list? Like, is it, is it really as simple as, well, I give a bit of time and I give a bit of money, and, you know, I try to be a good person. Is it just as simple as that, or is there actually something deeper at play in all of this? There has to be something deeper at play in all of this. So when we look for a definition of justice, right? Simplest sense, justice is about treating all people equally and equitably and having a genuine concern for their proper treatment while holding a genuine respect for all people. I mean, that's not really simple, because if you wanted to spend the next five years unpacking it, we could spend so much time on each of those lines, right? We're talking about seeing the value of another person and having a genuine heart or love for other people, for them, for all other people. And so this is what we're talking about, living a life of justice, being a just person. This is what we're talking about when we, when we consider the idea of, of living a life on purpose that makes a difference in not just our own lives, but in the lives of others. And when it comes to the subject, Jesus has so much to say. All of scripture actually has so much to say around this subject when it comes to, to kind of defining um, or recognizing the worth of every single individual. But there's this one verse in particular in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, which Nancy just read for us, where Jesus puts his finger right on the issue that's at play. And he says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, your mint, your dill, your cumin, But you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. If we're going to make a difference in the world, if we're going to make an impact on the people around us, if we're going to live a life of purpose, then it can't simply be about checking items off a to-do list and getting on to the next thing. It has to be about a transformation that happens in our hearts that turns us to be people who are compassionate and merciful towards every person we meet. And this is what Jesus is getting at. In all of chapter 23, um, there's a series of woes 
or warnings or, or criticisms, you could say. I look, like to look at them and see that Jesus is actually pleading with a group of people to say, you have been doing one thing, but you've got it wrong. You've got to change your approach. You've got to change your perspective. And what's so provocative about this particular passage, and in verse 23, what's so provocative about this is the group of people that Jesus is pointing his finger at, or putting his finger on, I should say, when he says this. He's talking to some of the most highly religious people of the day. These were people called Pharisees. So if you've been reading through uh, the gospel according to Matthew with us, then you will have seen from time to time that Pharisees, these religious, these spiritual leaders are popping up. And the word Pharisee, actually, the title Pharisee translated actually means separate ones. These were people who were separate from the rest of, they were were a sect or a group of Jews that were actually separate from the other Jews because of their piety, because of how religiously strict they were, how how strictly they adhered to the religious laws. Not not just that, but their own particular interpretation of the the Mosaic laws or of the Hebrew Bible, that which we refer to as the, um, the Old Testament of the Bible. We've got the Old and the New all put together. They would have thought of their Bible, their holy book would have been what we see today as the Old Testament. And the Pharisees were, were so strict in the way that they interpreted what it said and the way that they practiced it out that other people looked at them and said, look at them, they are like distinguished by how holy they are, by how, by how perfect, dare we say, they are, by how religiously um, strict they are with themselves. And so they were set apart by people who could come up against them, I guess was, is the question, right? Like if you were a Jew and you didn't practice quite the same as them, how could you possibly go up to them and say, hey, uh, by the way, because if they were getting every 613 some odd laws and they were actually making each one of those even more detailed, digging down deeper even to more of the minutia of each of those, an average ordinary Jew or any other person, like you can't come up against them because they were so um, public with their demonstrations of their faith. They were known for this. Right? There's that crazy word phylactery that's shown up. You guys all have a phylactery on you somewhere? No. A phylactery, there's a couple of different ways that they would apply phylacteries, but literally, these were little boxes that they put little scrolls of scripture inside. And so what's interesting is these, you would find a phylactery on the wall, uh, uh, the entranceway of a Jew's house or inside their house, but some of them would even wear them in little boxes on their body. And they'd have these little boxes and rings that they'd wear, and inside that little box would be a piece of scroll. And, and Jesus is saying, you guys wear really big phylacteries. Like, you have these gigantic boxes. So, like, you're walking around with gigantic study Bibles with commentaries, if you want to think of it that way, attached to your hands. So other people look at you and say, whoa, look at how hardcore they are. There's this public sense of that, right? And the tassels on their garments were, were big and were broad, which is this religious kind of picture, Right? And so it's through their adherence to the law that they could be certain they were close to God, right? This is what God told us to do. We're going to do word for word every single thing he told us to do. And because of that, we will have certainty that we are closer to God. This is a group of people Jesus is talking to. Jesus comes and he has seven warnings, seven of these woes, seven times he addresses them as Pharisees. Six of those seven warnings, he calls them also hypocrites. hypocrites. And all of a sudden, there's this shift in our thinking of saying, that's not a great word to describe religious people. Or we have this sense of thinking, well, hold on, like, hypocrite is not like like an encouraging word. 
going to write a birthday card. Happy birthday, you hypocrite. You're not going to do that. Like, there's something about this. Obviously, Jesus is saying something significant because he titles them uh, scribes, he, uh, experts or teachers of the law, hip, um, Pharisees, hypocrites. Whoa. He was saying these words to them in their presence. We call people hypocrites, or we use the word hypocrite when we would say they're not practicing what they preach, right? They, they say one thing, but they do another. They, they make a big case about how maybe uh, awesome they are, about how important a particular thing is to them, but then they go and they do the complete opposite. We would say that well, you're a hypocrite. You're not doing what you said you'd do. This word is actually kind of rooted in this sense of, um, think of like a, a stage actor or a stage actress, okay? Somebody who um, is paid to put on a costume, put on makeup, um, memorize lines, and to go on stage and to perform to say the exact right things at the exact right time, to do the exact right actions at the exact right time when they're supposed to, according to the script, for what purpose? I would say that most people that are into acting or drama or whatever enjoy it most when there's people in front of them to watch that and admire their skill, right? And so they were do like, this is who they had become. This is what the Pharisees had become. They had wanted to do the right things. They had wanted to say the right things. Uh, they, I mean, down to their actual garb, what they wore was kind of demonstrated that there was something missing here. And Jesus is saying, you have taken what was a good thing, the law, your religion, but you've allowed it to turn you into something that you were never supposed to be. Because you are now, you are now more concerned about how you look on the outside. You're more concerned about what's taking place in terms of what you say and what you do, but your outside doesn't match your inside. Actually, as you read the rest of the passage, Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs, which is a severe picture of like a really nice casket. Don't get me wrong, I mean no disrespect. The body inside of a casket is typically a dead body. That's a huge point that Jesus is making there when he says that in the other places, right? Now, the thing is about the, hypoc or about the hypocrites, the thing is about the Pharisees is that I don't think they were trying to be hypocritical. I don't think they were trying to be actors. And we have to be careful. Those of us who've grown up in church and maybe those of you who are brand new to church, we have this sense of wanting to be, or new to Jesus, we have this sense of wanting to be critical of these religious people, but we have to be careful because I doubt that's how they started out. Right? I don't think anybody who's genuinely longing for God, genuinely trying to do what's right in God's eyes, starts off by saying, I just want to impress everybody else around me. No, I think it starts with, I genuinely want to do what's right in God's eyes. So when we talk about them, we, we shouldn't paint them as like some dark cloaked figures that are walking around in the, in the Bible and all these stories, right? We have to look at them and say, okay, what is their actual deal? Like, how did they become like this? Were they always like this? They had become, their religion had caused them to be so consumed with the idea of doing the right thing that they got to a point where they just tried to check off all the right boxes, make sure I do the right things, and say the right things, that somewhere along the lines, it became only about the outside and not about the inside, and what was created to form their hearts, to be a heart after God's own heart, turned into something that had nothing to do with their love for God or other people. It had only to do with their self-importance and their self-preservation, making sure that they were more, that making sure they were taken care of as opposed to anyone else. And of course, what, what happens in all of this is when you are so consumed with yourself, you run out of time for other people. And that was what happened to them as well. The inside doesn't match the outside. And he uses a really tangible example. 
He talks about uh, uh, giving a tenth, right? He says you give a tenth of your mint and your dill and your cumin. How many of you, as you think about giving charitably to Canada or wherever else or giving to the church, go through your spice cabinet and say, okay, that looks like I've got whatever, you know, and you give a tenth of an ounce of paprika in the envelope, right? You've probably noticed if you give online that there's no option for dill, right? Well, what's this, what's this about? What's Jesus getting at? <clears throat> in a sense, you could say, you could look at this one way, and you could say, wow, they were so literal and so serious about their interpretation of the law with regards to giving a tithe of all that you have that they went through every single drawer in their house and gave that, So Jesus is saying, sure, if you're giving a tenth of your mint and your cumin and your dill, for sure you've given a tenth of your crop or a tenth of your animals that you've raised or a tenth of your money. For sure you've done that. This is how serious you are even down to this level, right? That's almost a compliment, but then Jesus hits them with this other thing when he says, but in doing that, you missed what was most important the whole way through. And that's the point, isn't it? That's what happens, we, we get so caught up in trying to do the exact right thing for the exact right reason to check the box off that we actually miss the heart of the matter altogether. And, and again, we love this idea of a tithe because it's, it seems about as straightforward as you can get, right? So, I mean, if, if, we, if you still think about tithing or giving a tenth or, or whatever that might be, you say, well, I make $100 a month, so I'm going to give $10 a month to the church or to God or to support. I'm going to make $1,000. It's a tenth. Perfect. You can, you can set it automatically. You don't even need to think about it. And then the money goes to wherever you wanted it to go and you can move on to the next thing. Now, this, just to push up on this a little bit, actually, uh, the idea of a tithe is not nearly as cut and dry as just 10%, right? As you read through parts of Scripture, you can see it's actually anywhere between 10 and 20%. You're like, whoa, whoa, 10, 20%. Hold on. Nobody ever told me about 20% of my deal. I mean, I mean my money or my time or whatever, Right? And so we just don't want to go there. But this is what even happens to us. It's happened to the, the Pharisees, and it begins to happen to us too. We get caught up in the, in the regular routine of just trying to do the right thing, try to do what we think is being asked of us, that now it's this automatic, automated thing, and it's not even our heart isn't in it at all. And Jesus says to them, you have missed the point. And Jesus says to us, we miss the point. Jesus is not interested in our stuff He's interested in us. God, throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, as you read through the development and the implementation of the sacrificial system and the law, was never supposed to be just about doing the right thing. God was trying to say, this is how much you're going to need me. You want to live life the way that I created you to live? This is part of what it's going to look like, but you can't actually do that without me. God is saying, my heart is for you. Will you have a heart for me? This all comes down to the posture of our heart. And to drive this point home, uh, to, I mean, this is all coming out of one verse, right? So Jesus is really digging deep here. He goes to Micah chapter 6, verse 8. So he appeals to these religious leaders. He says, you know the law inside and out. So when he says, quite simply in, in 23, when he quotes them about justice, mercy, and faithfulness, anyone in the room... Anybody around him would have known 100% without question that Jesus was going right back to the prophet Micah, where he says, what does God require of you, O mortal, like people? What does God even require? What is this all about? That you'd act justly, that you'd love mercy, and that you'd walk humbly with your God, which is faithfulness. 
right? See how those two things are, are tied together? And Jesus is pulling this up, and he actually, he says, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Like, you should be doing all of it, but you got to this point where you just started to make sure you were checking off the right boxes that your heart wasn't in it anymore. You no longer had a heart for God. You no longer had a heart for other people because you were so caught up in making sure that everything was right just for you. And, and that's what had happened to them. They became so concerned with doing things the right way that their love there wasn't any more. And so... Jesus says, you know what's most important, or I'm telling you what's most important, that you live a life that is just towards others, that you act justly, that you love mercy. If you love mercy, that means you know you you love that you've received it, but you love dishing it out as well, and that you walk in true faithfulness to God. See, we get confused in this whole thing, and and this is part of uh, the religious uh, religious, idea, religious ideology can really make us think these things and, and misinform us to make it seem like God's love for us is motivated by the things we do for him. If you, if you take a good look at, I mean, Christian religion, Jewish religion, a lot of all the other world religions, at the core of it, you're going to see there's this sense of the love of God is uh, the mercy of God, the kindness of God, the protection of God, the blessing of God, the, all the things of God are all contingent on whether or not you do the right things to him. You make the right sacrifices, you, you do the right, you read the right amount, you give the right amount, you do the right amount of things. When he sees that, he will be satisfied and he will be now motivated to give you what you think you've earned. That's not the picture of Jesus in the New Testament. That's not the picture of God in the Old Testament, not as if there's an Old Testament God and New Testament God. That's not the picture of, of who God the creator is at all. God's love, God's mercy, God's um, heart towards us, his compassion for humanity, the way that he treats us with justice, the way that he sees us equally and equitably is not motivated by any of the things we do for him. It's motivated out of his own love for us, something that preexists us, something that was there long before we did one thing right or one thing wrong. His love for people was always there. And it's the very same thing that even to this day, right now, continues to motivate him to pursue us, to call out for us, to long for us. It's his heart's posture towards us that motivates him to treat us with justice and with mercy and to give us the opportunity of walking in faithfulness with him. But the problem for the Pharisees and the problem for us is that we get caught up again in trying to do the right thing at the right time for what we thought were the right reasons, but all of that got messed up and our hearts no longer were for him. They were for something completely different. We try to do the right things for the wrong reasons. Before long, we're going to see that our heart isn't in it and we just, just get it done. And it doesn't even matter. It doesn't make an impact anymore. And we feel like this cannot be what I'm made for. We feel like this cannot be what life is supposed to be about. I feel disassociated from any of the help I'm trying to give as I, as I give time or money or whatever. I feel disassociated from this. But, but because God sees in us our inherent value and dignity and um, because he is motivated by his love for us, we, we see that um, our purpose in making a difference in the world is not about checking items off a list and getting on to the next thing, but rather it's about 
receiving God's heart for us, therefore being able to have a heart that's postured towards loving God, which will absolutely give us a heart that is for other people. Because when we see God's heart and we say we recognize his love for us, we grow in love for him, and what he does is he gives us a heart just like his. And so God looks at all of us in justice, which means in justice, with justice, maybe the better way to say that. God looks at all of us with justice. And back to the beginning, that definition is equally, equitably. We're all worth the same. We're all unbelievably valuable to him. And so when we have a heart for him and a heart like his, then we get to look at every other person around us and we say, I see them now like God sees them. They're valuable. I see them equally and I want to treat them equitably. God saying, you know, what does he require of us but to act with, or to, to love mercy? That's because he has been merciful to us. Mercy is, is not giving people what they do deserve. Grace is giving people what they don't deserve. Just so happens, God is, has an unlimited supply of all those things. And he gives them to us without reservation, as a gift. We, we try to make it up to him. And we say, we say, God, I'm so indebted to you and I just want to make it back. I just want to make it up to you even though I never could. The most important part of that whole thing is you never could. I never could. We were never supposed to be able to. It's too tremendous a gift. And so even when we sing, when we give, when we do all the things that we do, when we love other people, what we're doing is not saying I'm trying to make it up to God. We're saying, God, you've given me a heart like yours and now I'm going to do what I can because I love people the way you've loved me. I'm passing on that gift that you've given to me freely. This is game-changing when it comes to the concept of religion. I mean, we can think about world religions and Christianity and blah, blah, blah. We can do all that. That's important stuff, not a blah, blah, blah. It's a really important blah, blah, blah. But the most dangerous religion for every one of us is the one that we create in our own hearts. The own standard we say we have to hold ourselves to, our own rules. I will be good enough when. I'm not good enough because. That's the most dangerous one. But when our hearts are becoming like the heart of God because it's what he's given us, then that just melts away. And we realize we're free to live in relationship, in harmony, to walk humbly in faithfulness with God like we've been told and shown in Scripture. It's actually a liberating thing. And this isn't just something we do. It becomes our purpose to have a heart of God, to have the heart of God for other people. So what do we do about this? How, does this how, how, do we, where, how do we actually make this happen? I hope and pray that the Spirit of God is actually like applying things to your heart and to your mind and your soul right now. But really practically, if, you, if we love other people, then we can translate this into the way that we practice business, for example. Right? Um, this means I want to love people equally and justly and with mercy this means I'm going to provide as many opportunities uh, as far as I'm able in my workspace to create job opportunities for people who need them most. Sometimes that means you're going to end up hiring somebody who is not the most skilled for the job, but you're going to say, this person needs it, this person is valuable, and I'm willing to put the time into investing in them to get them to be the kind of worker, skilled labor, whatever it is that, that they need to be. It's, it's not about what they can do for me, it's about what actually I can do for them in this employment opportunity. If you run your own businesses or perhaps you're high up in some other business and you have influence here, um, one way we can apply justice is by, um, not, is by choosing to not charge clients the absolute most amount of money we can get out of them while paying our employees the least amount of money 
we can legally get away with. That's not equality. That's not equity, equitability. It's not, it's not those things. <laughs> it's not justice. It's not love. It's not mercy. Is that risky? Probably, yeah. But underlying this is the heart. We don't just do these things because it's good ethics. We do these things because God has given us a heart for other people. This is so important, even as it comes to the way we speak on a regular basis, like the language that we use. When you start receiving the heart of God and now having a heart like his for others, seeing people as inherently, intrinsically valuable, your language will begin to change where there will be no more ethnic slurs. There will be no more sexual jokes. There, will, there won't be language that undermines any person because in order to do that, you are actually undermining who God says they are. And, and this, this creeps in sometimes in really strong ways, but the most common ways that we do these kinds of things is we say, ah, oh, they drive that way because they're from such and such a country. Excuse me, that's not justice. That's not equity. That's not the heart of God. Well, what could you expect from a guy like that? I mean, look at his situation. That's the way he was raised. Is that a loving thing? Or is that actually slighting him? Well, she, I mean, she got herself into that situation. She, I mean, that just makes sense. That, they would, that she would follow that line. That's not love. That's not the heart of God. If God is forever looking at us saying, how can I come alongside you and redeem your situation and rescue you from your situation? When we receive a heart like his, we look to other people and say, what can I do for them? We often do those things or say those things because we don't have real love for other people. They're an inconvenience to us. But we can get caught up in our own lives and our own self-importance that we miss the heart of God for others. What about giving? I'm not even talking about giving to the church. I'm talking about whatever you do, wherever you give your money. And here's another really simple, tangible example that I know has been true in my own life and is maybe true in the lives of others. So allow me to, to see. You're walking wherever you're walking and there's somebody who comes and asks you for a couple bucks. What's the narrative in your head? Is it, let me give you whatever I have? Is it, hold on, I don't have any cash on me, let me go inside? It's, it, is, it, is it, oh, do you actually need a bite to eat? Can I grab you lunch? Or is it, that's a pretty nice jacket. That jacket's nicer than mine. You wouldn't really need my five bucks if you can afford a jacket like that. What's the heart of God? Is that one that we've received towards us? And are able now to dish out to others. This is what Jesus is getting at over and over and over again. Is this risky? I already said this. Yes, it is risky. Someone could very well take the five bucks you gave them or the lunch that you gave them or whatever and they absolutely could be scamming you. They absolutely could be taking advantage of you. And even that paints the picture of what Jesus is putting his finger on in our own lives because how often have we squandered, abused the love and the grace of God to us in so many ways? And then we are all of a sudden not able to offer it to others. It's almost like I heard a sermon about that last week, right? When, Jesus, when, when Vijay was talking about uh, forgiveness and what does that look like, giving out what we receive. How about inclusivity? Our attitude towards refugees or immigrants or um, homeless people or people in our community that are having a harder time uh, living their lives our attitude in all of that will change when we actually join in relationship with them and actually begin to love them. You don't talk badly 
or rudely or undermine or slight the people that you love. And I think one of the reasons we don't care for other people is because we haven't actually spent time getting in relationship with them to be able to love them. And this is part of who we are made to be. This is what we are being called to be. It's part of our purpose. And so I want to ask, like, how is God stirring your heart in all this? Is there a person that's in your mind right now? Is there a situation that's taken place recently that maybe there's even a chance for you to go and act on that, to say, I didn't actually act in love. I didn't actually express the heart of God. I didn't uh, act justly or, or love mercy in that. Is there an individual? Is there a family? Is there a group of people? Is there a particular cause? Maybe it's your employees. Maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe it's a young mom. Maybe it's a, I don't know. What about, is there a cause or a ministry that pulls on your heart? Is there, and, and you know, we're, we're heading into Global Week, right? Next Sunday, Tony's going to come up in a little while and he's going to share some more details about what Global Week is and how our church uh, kind of focuses um, on, we spend a week of time focusing on prayer and, and giving and all these kinds of things around supporting other people, doing ministry in different places. Maybe there's one of these that's really going to pull on your heartstrings. And so, for example, one of these opportunities is um, the way that we have, as a church, have responded quite literally to Jesus putting his finger on this point and saying, what is, what do you, what is a life of purpose look like? It looks like loving, or, um, acting justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with me. We've taken that as literally as we possibly can, and we've said, okay, how do we act justly? How do we as a church do justice? We're trying to do this as we just have regular Sundays and regular interactions, but in maybe on a global scale, how do we do this? And so we've been blessed with this incredible opportunity to fundraise money, to provide, court, provide money to provide human trafficking victims with court support so they can go through the processes of, of um, what's the word I'm looking for, of um, uh, testifying, thank you, testifying in court before their pimps. The people have been owning their lives. They're now at this plate where they're able to come in and they're in the court and they're in this whole process. And we are partnered with an organization called Men Ending Trafficking. Um, and there's, a, I mean, where the hub is, for those of you that have been to the hub, uh, our church offices down in, in uh, Vaughan, just in that immediate area, there are women that are being trafficked on a regular basis. And so we've said, okay, God, uh, this is not how it's supposed to be. What do we do? And the response that has been given to us by the people who are doing the front lines work is, well, here's how we can tangibly do this. $10,000 will give $1,000 to 10 women. That's about the money they need to go through their court case. But this isn't just about giving because we can just give and get on with it. Instead, what we're seeing happen is people, and maybe you're one of the people that wants to become a part of this, are going through a process of training so they can actually go and sit in court during these trials. And while they're there, they're praying and they're being an actual physical presence of support to the women that are testifying. Another amazing opportunity that our church has been led into is to actually host a ladies' night worship night. And we've had the first one a week ago where an invitation went out. It was put in strip clubs and massage parlors and is being spread out. And we're saying to women, hey, we want to provide a safe opportunity for you to come, for you to have a chance to hear about the God who loves you. And sure enough, last week, there were people there and at the end of VJ uh, shared a little bit, at the end of that, she was asking questions. There's an interaction that's beginning to happen. Why, why is this happening? Because we said, God, give, us our, give our church a heart like yours. And he says, do you want a heart like mine? Then love people like I do. And he put this opportunity in front of us. And our office is right smack dab in the middle of like the hub of human trafficking. 
in, in, in the GTA. I, and I'm like amazed by this. This is what God does. When you say, God, give me a heart like yours, just watch what's going to happen. When it comes to mercy, right, it's participating and supporting people. And God, in the old, I mean, you read the Old Testament, you just see over and over and over and over. Actually, in James, in the New Testament, it said, what is true religion? Caring for the, the widow and for the orphan. So we said, okay, God, how do we have a heart like yours for widows and orphans? And by work that God has done, we have a connection in, in Guinea, West Africa, where there is a, um, a home for orphan babies. Right now, they have like 30 babies in their care. And we went to the woman there, Lizette, who I think there's like a connection. Some people might know that name or know who she is. What, what's the biggest need? What's the thing we can do for you right now? She said, we just need, like, we need money for medicine and money for formula. We said, what is like the most basic way we can support these people in need? Giving them exactly what they're asking for, which is the most important thing for a baby, is healthy food for them to eat and medicine if and when they get sick. And so we're, we want to raise $20,000 to send over there. But what's amazing about that is, again, it's not just signing a check and sending it off. There's been opportunities for teams to actually go to Guinea and participate in that. And I don't think we're doing one this year, but we're going to be doing a call probably for, I believe, next year, maybe. Um, anyways, keep posted on that because clearly I'm not so sure on it. But there will be more opportunities for people to actually say, yeah, it's not just about giving. It's not just about praying. I want to go. I want to go and be a part of that. There are so many other opportunities I could share. God has given us a heart for other people because we've recognized his heart for us. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. Why do we do this stuff? Like, why, why do we make this a part of our lives? Because we see that our purpose in life cannot just be about ourselves, making sure we get through the day, making sure we're safe, making sure we're protected, making sure our own backs are covered. Our purpose in life has to be bigger than just ourselves. And it's not about just checking boxes off a list. It's about getting before God and saying, Lord, you're the one who actually made me. You know what my life is supposed to be about. Would you give me a heart like yours as I respond to your heart for me? And over and over and over again, he will prove himself sure. And you will see the way that your inside is transformed, begins matching the outside actions as you speak and do and give of your time and everything else there is to give. And we get to live these lives that are full of justice, that are full of mercy, and walking humbly with God.